0: Welcome to the John E. Martin Mental Health Care Podcast Series. I'm Corrine Markwart, your host for today's episode. Our guest today is Anita Tareb, Global Senior Director of Sustainability, Environment, and Health and Safety at Google. In this role, she is responsible for ensuring the health and safety of employees and contractors at all Google data centers, as well as construction sites across the globe. Her team has implemented management systems and programs that not only assure health, safety, and environmental compliance, but have moved the needle in terms of environmental health and safety innovation. She places a strong emphasis on the entire person, including mental health and well-being, and was the judge for last year's Johnny Martin Mental Health Care Case Competition. Anita, thank you so much for being with us today. Hi, Corinne. Great to be here. So first of all, I'm so thrilled to have you To kick us off, can you tell our audience a little bit about yourself? Where did you grow up and what inspired you to pursue a career in occupational health and safety? Well,
1: thanks. It's a long story because I'm not that young. I grew up on a a barrier beach off the the coast of Long Island called Long Beach. And my father had a hardware store, which I worked in for, say, age five to age eighteen. When I went off to college, I wanted to be a forest ranger. Because of growing up in New York, I had never actually seen a forest and thought that would be a cool thing to be. Graduated with a degree in environmental engineering and then didn't know what I wanted to do. So I went off and pursued a a master's program at a Hebrew University in Jerusalem. Was there about a week and went, oh my God, they're teaching in Hebrew, So promptly dropped out and got a job at the zoo and was uh, bitten by everything and anything that had teeth. They think I taste like chicken. While I was there, I met some professors from Hunter College in New York. And they were talking about an occupational health program and I thought, oh, that's interesting. You know, I went home and they offered me a fellowship to enter that program, which I took and realized that, wow, this is very interesting. This is really about health and safety of people in the workplace. And I'm a history buff and the stories I found fascinating about occupational health and the history of occupational health and epidemiology. And it really, really spoke to me. And then I went briefly to work for OSHA. realized I was not a great civil servant, way too many rules. And then I went to work for a variety of aerospace companies, picked up a lot of safety on the way, and then became a consultant for a while and then was transferred to Peru. Kyrgyzstan and finished up in uh, Suriname, which is a little country right at the top of South America, working with mining, miners, exploration, and uh, really living in some interesting and rough places. And then the mining company brought me back to Denver to the corporate office, and I was there about less than a year. And I started through my junk mail, and I found this note from Google, and it said, you know. Would you like to uh, speak to us about a position? And I said, wow, this is spam. And then they mentioned someone I knew 20 years ago and I went, this is really good spam. <laughs> so I got in touch with them. Could not figure out like, why Google would want to talk to me. Coming from the mining industry, I could turn on a computer, maybe edit a document and that was about it. But they were interested in my background and they hired me. And that was
0: almost seven years ago. So that's how I got to where I am. I love that. It's such an incredible journey. And I would love to hear a little bit about that transition from traveling around and your work with miners to your work with Google. What was that transition like? Do you feel like there were a lot of parallels or, or was it a, an adjustment? It was a culture shock. <laughs> <laughs> Complete culture
1: shock. First of all, I had to get rid of my, my steel toe boots and actually get like sneakers, you know, cause that's all birds. That's what you wear in the Bay Area, right? You know, that was a big deal. In mining, there was an absolute focus on safety because we were are talking about life and death, and indeed, people did die. you go into tech and they're going, what? what? What do you mean? You know, will I fall out of my desk chair? You know, and then, you know, but the data centers themselves had a lot of issues, even especially with electrical safety, tremendous amount of power that goes into data centers. And then I looked around and said, my God, we're not serving our construction folks. And that was a heavy lift, but incredibly rewarding. And then we've expanded. So I also have quality now. I have training. And uh, the team has grown to almost 200 people. My team. (laughs) These teams bigger. (laughs) And, you know, it has really been a remarkable journey. I mean, Google, once you've established trust, is, uh, as I explained to people coming in on my team, it it can be like a candy store. If you can dream it up, then you can try it. You can try to produce it, and the things we've been able to accomplish are in many ways mind-blowing. We're using predictive analytics for um, accidents in construction, you know, using robotics, starting uh, way to the left of anything that could be a safety or quality hazard by looking at all the designs and hiring electrical engineers and mechanical engineers. But we also have, of course, you know, boots on the ground nuts and bolts, safety and health and environmental people. But just being able to influence at that early, early
0: stage has been uh, fantastic. It's so incredible to hear that you were able to grow maybe a small or maybe non-existent team to 200 people, but taking a little bit of a step back for those who are less familiar with sustainability, environmental health and safety roles, what does that really mean for your teams? What are you responsible for? And what does that look like working with Google and the data centers?
1: So uh, as I define it, is that we really have three missions, right? Protect the workers or anyone who comes to work on our site, not just Google people, but anyone who comes to work on or near a Google site. And that doesn't mean just a data center. It could mean a leased property or a warehouse. And those are often not Google employees. But we have, as I look at it, as a moral responsibility to them. The second part of our mission is to protect the environment. So nothing leaves our site, no spills and no air emissions, being completely and 100% in compliance with the regulatory um, requirements, no matter where we are in the world, is incredibly important to us. The final leg of that three-legged stool is to protect Google. You know, reputationally, I don't ever want to be in the news because of something that we didn't do or we didn't do correctly in protecting the environment and protecting people who come in contact with our facilities.
0: That makes a lot of sense. Many of our listeners for this podcast are particularly interested in mental health and I know that your team has done a lot of really cool work and has made some real investments in mental health for workers on your sites. So first of all before we jump into some of the cool investments you've made and some of the solutions, I was wondering if you could share with us some of the mental health challenges that you have seen in the worker populations that you engage with. Yeah, that's a really great question. You know, in mining, I think extractives may
1: be the number one industry with leading with suicides. And I think number two is construction. And several years ago, I, I just sort of looked at who we were and said, you know, we're physically protecting people, but are we protecting them emotionally? And then I, I looked at, well, what are some of the things that drive construction workers or even data center workers or people who are on the road a lot to despair? And I was able to check almost all of the boxes. In construction, they are often travelers who come in, live in motels. Dinner is, you know, often a six-pack or a pizza. They're away from their families. It's a very macho environment where talking about your problems and how you're feeling just does not exist. And so you can see within the construction industry that the suicide rate is incredibly high. And I started looking at accidents and I said, well, what would make a steel worker walk across a beam without any protection, even though they had 10, 15 years of experience and safety training was pounded into their hands? And I started thinking, well, is this intentional or people intentionally putting themselves in harm's way, which makes a lot of sense. Their family doesn't have to deal with suicide. Their family doesn't have to deal with insurance companies uh, denying claims. And so I began to wonder if many of these horrible industrial but single accidents were not indeed ways of people wanting to harm themselves. The data center environment is also a somewhat similar. It is many of our our workers come out of the military. It is another sort of a very macho environment. Some do talk to each other, but if you're even slightly different, if you're gay or bi or trans, if you're not white, it is not as fun place to work as it could be. And so that really made me think that we need to do something to make mental health just a part of of what we do, of how we protect people and a part of, if somebody wants to talk about how their back hurts, I
0: also want them to talk about how they're struggling emotionally. So that was the mission. I'm so glad that you and maybe others on your team connected these dots and, and made these observations because it is, it's really heartbreaking when someone feels like they need to. And their lives, and identifying that problem has helped your team to really, at least, have the conversation and start looking for solutions. I'd love to hear from you what kinds of solutions you all have started to explore, and if you can give us an example of one that you're really proud of. Would love to hear a little bit about what your team has been up to on that space.
1: Well, sure. Thanks. (laughs) Um, When I realized that there was an issue, I reached out to colleagues in in the industry, and someone said, "Oh, I was at a." Safety Society meeting and they brought in this um, psychologist named Dr. Sally Spencer Thomas, and she talked about suicide mostly with like first responders, construction people. So dealing with, you know, um, these, um, as I said, macho population and that she was really great. So I wrote to her. We started talking and she tells you know, very deeply personal stories about losing her brother. And she became a small ma- number of psychologists are suicide specialists. And as Sally explained it, most don't want to be suicide specialists. Most, you know, take a course and there and that's it. But she is amongst a, a small group that actually specializes in in suicide. And we found that that she really she was the catalyst to get us moving. The first thing we did was we brought Dr. South to start talking to our construction teams. And her message is so personal and so present that they all sat up and listened. These are our general contractors and our subcontractors. And they went, wow, this is a problem. And everybody in that room, everyone in that room, had either struggled with depression or had lost a colleague or best friend to suicide. And it was not something remote and so completely touched, you know, where we needed to go. After that, we instituted a program in construction called Project Resilience and Data Center Project Upstream. Project Resilience really was having Dr. Sally come in and talk to different teams, as well as continually giving out coping cards. You know, what does depression look like? What does depression feel like? How do you deal with your children who may be depressed? And then of course, the pandemic hit and everybody's depressed. So we were able to, you know, like really expand this, you know, what, you know, how do you get away from your desk? How do you connect with people when you can't see them every day? And we really blew that out and then blew it out in the data centers as well. And people started talking on the construction sites. We put in a program called Ombudsman Ombudspersons. Where we had a man and a woman, predominant languages were English and Spanish, where you can just go anonymously and talk. And of course, we have the blue dot system anywhere within Google, where if you need to talk to somebody, you can recognize them by a blue dot on their hard hat or on their badge and chat. You know, these are particularly meaningful programs and Project Upstream was named that because the old uh, parable of you see somebody drowning and you jump in and you try to save them, and you see two people drowning and you try to save both of them, and you see three people drowning and you would get other people to try to save them, and then there's a bunch of people drowning and then you realize I'm going to go run upstream and see who's throwing these people into the water. So that's why we called it Project Upstream to really get to the what's going on with you, what's going on for you, and build this infrastructure of camaraderie and listening and speaking and also training our leaders to be more vulnerable, you know, to speak from their hearts, to share their stories and the sharing of the stories has been incredible. So, and and, you know, what's interesting for me is as we expanded this across the globe, we're seeing a really big uptick in participation and understanding in the APAC region in Asia where, you know, you get to a place like Singapore where suicide is illegal. If you attempt suicide, they throw you in jail. And so the talking about suicide has been, you know, very, very difficult. But it is spreading and we're seeing successes
0: and it's been just incredibly rewarding for us. I thought it was interesting that you brought up shifts across countries where you initially saw more challenges with talking about mental health. You brought up Singapore as an example. Our case competition teams, actually in the semifinal round, talked about culturally responsive care. And so I'd love to hear a little bit more from you about how you've had to adjust your approach for different cultural settings.
1: Well, of course, privacy became of the utmost importance and also using local talent. So Sally helped us identify local talent in different countries, which really helped us. And, you know, another success story for us is Japan where suicide is or a culturally acceptable part of Japanese society, not so much anymore, but it still sort of remains in the background. And to find Japanese psychologists and counselors who could really talk about suicide was really important to us because you can't bring your U.S. or California-based approach to, to any other countries. And, and sometimes you can't bring it across the U.S. as well. I mean, I don't think that I can go into a site in Alabama, Tennessee, where I've never lived and and have no family and talk about suicide prevention or mental health or emotional support like someone who lives there can. It also became very clear to us that we needed at least one clinical psychologist on our team and started looking for was someone who deals with minority populations, deals with public health and mental health issues. And we were able to find Dr. Leela McKnight out of the CDC, and she joined our team, I want to say, in September and has been so busy <laughs> since then, well, you know, because of COVID uh, vaccine hesitancy as well as building, helping to build resiliency and programs at our data centers and our construction sites. And Leela right now is in the process of recruiting others for her team because the absolute need, although never identified before, is exploding. And we didn't realize that when we said, well, Ray and Leela, maybe she'll be busy. If not, maybe she'll go to benefits. You know, you know. <laughs> And she has been just nonstop with Teams reaching out for her saying, please come in and talk to us. Please come in and and help us with our population. And let me give you an example. So we realized that at one of the warehouses in Georgia, the population of the warehouse was 90% African-American. The vaccine rate at that warehouse was 10%. Leila and others put together a program where they brought in local doctors, local politicians, including Ambassador Andrew Young basketball players, DJs, and just spoke to people and talked about what the hesitancy was and got people talking. And, you know, we've gotten that population up to over 70% vaccinated. But me talking to them from my California point of view was never going to. And so that's what I mean about in everything we do when it comes to social issues or mental health issues, we have to go to people where they're coming from. We have to go to them. I
0: think that's a really great point. And I love that you talked about bringing Dr. Leela McKnight onto the team as your team has grown and expanded. I'd love now to hear how you think about collecting success stories and success metrics. Uh, what types of feedback and data have been relatively easy to collect? And then on the opposite end, what has been more challenging to collect?
1: The COVID was easy because we were just collecting jabs in the arm. So that was like the first thing we could actually really measure. But it, it is very much like any part of occupational safety. How do you really, really measure your impact? I can't sit here and say we saved this many lives or, you know, we, we changed this many lives or it had a, a positive effect on my lives because those are sort of immeasurable. Some of it you don't want to measure. You know, you don't want to say what's the cost of a human life, what's the cost of somebody's emotional well being, things like that. So it is a very difficult thing to measure. We did measure, quite frankly, drug overdoses, not at the data centers, but at construction sites. And I think it's no secret that in the middle of the US, opioid use is, is really out of hand and our construction sites and others were seeing eat you up know, overdoses. And now we're seeing zero. We haven't seen overdose in here more. The other way of, I guess, of measuring success is when we talk within the industry, particularly the construction industry, our general contractors and subcontractors have told us that we've moved the needle, that we've moved the mark, and they'll never do business the way they used to do business anymore. And so I guess that's a positive measurement of our
0: impact. It's incredible and good to hear. And of course, always more work to do. But it's great to hear that you're able to hear positive feedback on the investments that you and your team are making in that space. I know earlier you mentioned that in some work cultures, it can be challenging if you are an underrepresented identity to feel included in that space. And I'm really glad you brought that up because diversity, equity and inclusion is a focus for our podcast. I'd love to hear a little bit now from you on how your team has incorporated diversity, equity and inclusion into your work and programming. It's we're working
1: on that quite a bit. We contracted with a a group called Black Girl Doctor. It is a a team of essentially female Black psychologists who do monthly seminars open to whoever wants to be there, but really on the Black community to come in and just talk with them and to speak. That's picking up some steam. Dr. Leela and specializes in the minority population. Next up, I believe we need to bring in Spanish speaking psychologists to do for something very similar, and then um holes for us right now are the l g b t q community where we really need to start focusing in that area as well. so that's what we're doing i mean it, again, it's a work in progress, as you said before. there's so much more work to be done there are when I look at it, so many people who still suffer in silence. My feeling about all of this is you never want anyone to walk alone. And I think there are still so many people who do walk alone. So
0: we keep trying. Our case competition finalist teams, shifting slightly, have been asked to consider how large companies can support diverse suppliers and their workers. And can you share a little bit about how Google thinks about supplier diversity and supporting your suppliers? Yeah, um, I don't have the numbers, but Google made a commitment
1: to diversity suppliers the past couple of years. And I think that those commitments are being well exceeded. I wish I had the numbers in front of me. Sorry. Again, you know, when I go back to the warehouse example, the warehouses are generally not staffed with Googlers, but are staffed with vendors. And we work very hard with those vendors to bring this, our programs in. You know, we they have to own it. But they they're more than happy to do this. And when we see a need, like we did at the warehouse in Georgia, we work with them, step in and provide the full backing and um, power that we can, can bring in. For example, Fairbur Warehouse in Georgia, Leela's brother, Reggie McKnight, is the head of our community outreach program and outreach programs to historically black colleges and universities. As well as in the southern part of the U.S., and he was the one who was able to bring in Dr. Young because he knew him. Was able to bring in um, much of the local talent because he also knew them. So we're we're working really hard with that. Again, it's always a work in progress. Our you know our contractors, our construction contractors, general contractors. We have I believe one or two minority owned construction contractors. So we work with them. We give them standards, materials, the coping cards, We what we generally do is we hand them to the contractors and they use them for team meetings or pre-shift meetings. And so we provide the materials,
0: create the materials, and they present it as their own. That's incredible you, to hear you have seen such great adoption even with non-Google employees. Are there things that are harder to do when it comes to moving the needles with contractors or suppliers? Would love to hear a little bit about Like if there are any unique challenges in that space that our case competition teams could lean into.
1: Yeah, there are. I mean, there's a thing called co-employment, you know, where we can't go in and treat them like full-time employees. So we have to go through some channels to make it work. That's probably the biggest thing, the co-employment hurdles. To be honest, sometimes it's better to ask for forgiveness (laughs) and permission. (laughs) Um, (laughs) <laughs> we often get our hands slapped that we have to, you know, figure out work around solutions. But yeah, it is a challenging environment. I mean, ultimately, they are not your employees. Ultimately, you know, you, you don't pay them, you do know, their paychecks. But, you know, as I said, we have a, a moral obligation to protect these people, to protect people. And any way we can do it and any way we can figure
0: out how to do it, that's what we do. It's great to hear that you and your teams are pushing forward because it's at the end of the day, we're all humans, you know, working on these sites and regardless of who the employer is. I know I want to shift gears a little bit to talking about the um, case competition overall. So you are one of our earliest sponsors for the Johnny Martin Mental Health Care Case Competition, which started last year and very generously supported us as a speaker for a panel and as a judge for the final round last year. So I'd love to hear from you. Why are student programs like this important to you?
1: Well, I mean, for me, I feel like it is, it's twofold. One is it is a complete investment in the field. And I really think that if you want to move the needle, you're not going to do it with people like me who have been doing this forever, but you want to do it with people coming into the field and making that field interesting for them. You know, not everybody needs to be a banker. Not everybody needs to be a financial consultant or whatever, you know, whatever MBA students generally become. So, I mean, we, you know, I lived in and I went, well, they, you know, there is such a space and a need for people with incredibly diverse backgrounds to come into this field and, and make a difference. I have to say that what shocked me about the competition was when the teams introduced themselves and their backgrounds, I was completely floored. I thought that this was, you know, just a bunch of rich young kids who went from, you know, bachelor's to master's and went into Danny's business. And to hear that we had veterans, and construction workers, and nurses, and people who have also struggled with mental health, it was an eye opener, I, I have to say. So I thought that was amazing. The other thing that is amazing is that there's some ideas that come out of these competitions that could move the needle and make a difference in the world. And
0: And it's a fresh perspective.
1: And that's what I really love it.
0: Thank you for sharing about some of the work you all have done with Google and your perspective on the case competition. Um, I wanted to shift a little bit in these last few minutes and, and get to know you as a person and the leader you are. So to start off as a global leader at a company as large as Google, I imagine that there must be times when the work gets stressful or busy. And so I'd love to hear if you have any advice for things that you've found help you stay grounded when things get tough? So I can tell you it's always stressful, always busy,
1: um, like always. And when it's not, you wonder, like, am I still employed? Did they fire me and I didn't know? So uh, run upstairs, I, I work out of my basement, you know, go check in the door to see if there's a FedEx envelope for me or something. So what I do is I take a lot of walks. I mean, that's a really important part of my day, you know half hour, 45 minutes, an hour. just a huge part of my day. I work with my partner, so it actually actually gives us an opportunity to just chat, which is really nice. And you forget about how important it is to just chat. Not everything has to be important. When I'm really, really stressed, I bake because baking is precise and you can't be distracted. And if you are, it's a big disaster. So, you know, just weighing out flour, weighing out butter, and it's, it's a very precise thing, um, bread, you know, watching it rise and watching bread rise, I can't, can't think of anything less special. But, you know, that really helps. And I spend a lot of time in my garden and I made it a, a point this spring through summer till just around now to not eat any vegetables that I haven't grown. I'm running out of those right now. I also have,
0: you know, some colleagues I talk to some friends I talk to, and that makes a big difference. That's great. And I know my partner also really likes to bake when he's stressed and it it could be a double-edged sword because I always have baked goods around, but then with COVID there aren't as many people to share the the baked goods with. That's what neighbors are for, right? (laughs) That's a great point. I love that. I also cook a lot. I have a number of
1: elderly neighbors that I bring them on a couple of meals a week, you know, so that helps too. makes me not eat as much. I love that.
0: I also know early on, you mentioned that you traveled a lot in your career for work. So whether it be for work or for fun, I'm curious to hear what your favorite place has been that you visited.
1: Gosh, you know, everybody asks me that question. I am, um, because I think I've been like, in so many places and so many things are so interesting. You know, I did some work in Uzbekistan and I got to see, you know, some of the incredible cities on the old Silk Route, which were just amazing to me. Just amazing. A few years ago, when we could still travel, I went to Petra in Jordan and that was shockingly amazing. There's a certain thrill I get when I go to Israel. I think, you know, for many reasons, but also because I, I did spend some time there and time at the zoo getting bitten and i I still have some of the scars, and of course, I mean, for food, there is no place like Italy, no place like Italy <laughs> so yeah, and I was just lamenting the other day that I think I've been to London three or four times, five or four times a year for the past twenty years, and this is the first two years I haven't been, and it's, I'm starting to miss like you know it's just certain things I bring back and just feeling comfortable there so you know i can't say there's a favorite place but gosh it's an amazing world <laughs> and you just have to go in with an open mind and a sense of humor and it's it's all there
0: for you do you have any advice or uh, i guess tips and tricks you've learned through your travels that would help others who plan to travel a lot wow i always be
1: patient which doesn't come naturally to me by the way and yeah be patient make sure you have comfortable shoes <laughs> protect your passport with your life i don't know just try things you know not the most expensive restaurants you know try just you know look around and see where everybody else is eating don't you know not always you know sometimes it's great to see the tourist stuff because you really need to who wouldn't want to see the eiffel tower you know but um go wander the streets of paris you know the the little neighborhoods in paris are just Incredible, and maybe you'll find like the best pastry you ever ate, ever in your whole life. You know, um, wander the streets of, of London, and maybe you'll find that like the most amazing store that sells violins. I don't play violin, but to see a store that just sells violin, it's pretty cool. There are places where the churches have concerts, and maybe you know, two hours of organ music is too much for you. Sit in the back, and can slip out, but you know, it is pretty cool. So You know, don't bring your your own ways with you, but see
0: what you can learn. You've got me so antsy and excited for Global Travel to be opening up again. (laughs) (laughs) Me too. (laughs) too. I want to (laughs) go. This year was all family
1: visits. We went to Iowa, Minnesota, Florida, Georgia, New York, leaving for Spokane for Thanksgiving. So this is all family this
0: year, and I didn't realize how much I missed them. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't realize, I, by the way, I grew up in Spokane. I didn't know you had family there. Yeah, so we are going for Thanksgiving. <laughs> well, one of the things that I personally really admire about you and your career is that you are a female leader in largely male-dominated industries throughout your career. What has that been like, and do you have any advice for other leaders who may be underrepresented in the fields and industries that they are considering entering.
1: Yeah, that's a real tough one. And I, I really wish I had a, a good answer for that. If I look back at over my career, there were many, many, many in- instances of discrimination and I know it, but I never really stopped to look back to think about it. You know, it's kind of, a I had a golden retriever approach. It's like, you know, okay, well, what's next? Like, oh, I guess I didn't get promoted. Yeah? All right. I, I mean, I know maybe I would do things differently now, but you know, as, as my career um, was progressing, I mean, I absolutely know that there could have been more or there could have been greater opportunities.
0: It sounds like you've navigated some challenging discrimination and I really admire the leader you've become despite those challenges. Can you share some more about your overall leadership philosophy? Yeah, to show what you can do without,
1: you know, overly inflating what you can do and really focus on your team. I think that staying humble, being humble, but pushing your team forward, a really good thing to do. Also, you know, the workplace has changed and showing vulnerability. You can do that now and you can tell personal stories now and people appreciate that. And especially at Google, people appreciate that. So, you know, leadership with showing your vulnerability, I think is very important. And I'm not saying, you know, get together with your team and have a big old cry. But I am saying that, yeah, I, you know, you can say, we really don't know how to do this. Or as a leader, you can say, you know, I'm depending on you to do this because I personally don't know. I think that that's really important. I, and I also think that you know, there's a real delicate balance between being humble and being boastful. I would say be boastful about your team, be humble about yourself. It's perhaps the way to go and you're going to experience discrimination. The world hasn't changed that dramatically and you can recognize it and you can possibly do something about it, you call it out, but in the end, you're the one who has to move on and you're the one who has to take care of yourself. You know, I, I reread recently The Art of War. Seems like a funny topic to bring up now. But in the art of war, one of the most important discussions is every war has a cost. And so the wars that you decide to take on will have a personal cost to you, whether it's emotional or financial, but everything has a, a cost and you have to assess whether or not that war is worth it.
0: So insightful. And I love that you talk about how good leaders can admit when they need someone to really lean into something and be the expert and really own it. And I actually think when I think about teams that I've been on where I have felt really empowered, my managers have done that, have really known where I can own and let me run with it. So I think that's a, a really incredible philosophy. But, well, you know, so now
1: I have other teams that I really don't know a whole lot about. <laughs> and I'm like, I don't even know the vocabulary words. So, you know, I have to let them run with it. And so what I do for them is I remove roadblocks and I can also bolster them up to, to levels of management that they don't have access to. So I can bring them in, speak about what they're doing, or I can brag about what they're doing, or I can circulate papers that they've written or presentations that they've made. And I feel like that's a very important part of my role.
0: I agree. I know we talked a little bit about some of the things that bring you joy in life, travel and, and baking, et cetera. But are there other things that come to mind that you get a lot of joy from?
1: Obviously, my family. Whether I knew it or not, <laughs> I mean, there's a lot of joy in nature as well, you know, just seeing a lake, the ocean. This summer, we, we, we went to Minnesota. And my my brother in law has a house on a lake and waking up in the morning and hearing balloons and the crickets and the mosquitoes, just fantastic. You know, going out, and I'll call it fishing, but mostly it's just like floating on a boat. That peacefulness is just incredible. I've yet to try fishing and
0: I have heard great things about it.
1: Isn't that so much the fish? It's like the casting and the reeling in. And for me, it's God forbid you get a fish because I'm not going to get that on the line and then I don't really want to touch the bait, you know, because that's cookie. But just sitting there and floating around, we're sitting on a dock. And to me, it's just absolute heaven
0: peace. It's been so incredible, Anita, to have you um, share your stories and knowledge today. To close this out, many of our audience members are students, as we mentioned earlier. So do you have any advice for students or others in their career that may be thinking about a pivot or a next step? Do you have any advice for thinking about careers or even personal lives?
1: Yeah, uh, you know, I was thinking about that the other day. Um, you know, we get so focused when you get into grad school, right? I always think of grad school as like trade school. You know, you're totally focused on what you're doing. And I would really suggest, like, don't forget about the humanities. Don't forget about English. Don't forget about art. Don't forget about music. I mean, these are the things that are going to sustain you through the rest of your life. That accounting class you're taking ain't going to do it. You know, <laughs> um, just really don't forget about the humanities is so important and they really make us you know, emotionally richer and as human beings. And, and I think they make us more interesting beings. So. Don't always read those business books, read something, read literature, go, go to concerts, go to classical concerts, please. And only because the of people are going. Try to understand ballet, go to museums.
0: I mean, write in a journal. Don't forget the humanities. They will sustain you. Well, Anita, I think that's a great note to end on. Thank you so much again for being with us today. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you. It's been great to be here. Happy Thanksgiving. Happy Thanksgiving. <laughs> Thanks again for tuning into this episode of the John E. Martin Mental Health Care podcast miniseries. This miniseries is part of the Here at Haas podcast. We welcome you to tune into other Here at Haas episodes to hear about different happenings across the Berkeley Haas community. We know that everyone is in a different stage in their own mental health journey, and that's okay and even beautiful. Please be kind to those around you and we encourage you to care for yourself in the way that feels best for you. We hope you enjoyed our show and welcome you back soon.